There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. So this isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. This is David Marler, UFO researcher, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to That UFO Podcast, now in association with QuiteTheThingMedia.com. My name is Andy, as you will well know by now, and it's a very special podcast tonight. It's one that many, many people have been getting in touch with me about and asking, when's this going to happen? When's it going to be? When's it getting released? Is it going to be live? Um, So it's finally recording right now, and it's going to be released straight away. So you'll be listening to it almost uh, as soon as it finishes. I've got a a real personal highlight for myself and for the podcast uh, on the show. It's a true giant in the world of ufos and journalism i've got mr george knapp joining me on the podcast george how are you hey andy how you doing i'm very very well uh second time i've managed to speak to you in a close proximity of a couple of weeks ago myself and the guys from uap media uk were on mystery wire which was a, a real honor and pleasure and um it was real fun watching that back as well so great to speak to you again on the podcast I'm pleased to be here. I haven't uh, done any interviews in a while, so pleased to uh, do the do this one with you. Awesome. Uh, like I say, it was very popular. There is a lot of listener questions, and folks, you'll understand that I managed to get about a third of them into the show, and George has been really generous with his time as well. So we'll get straight into it. And before we get to all of that, George, I want to take a step back and hear how you became interested in UFOs yourself. At what point was it? Childhood or a little bit later on? You know, I had a, I think I got one UFO book that was given to me as a gift in the 1970s, 78, 79, somewhere in that era. And it was the Billy Meyer, one of those picture books with the sport model on the front, all those incredible photos. I looked at it. I didn't give it much thought other than, gosh, this can't be real, can it? Are these real? And, you know, it's a coffee table kind of book. I, I read it once and put it away and didn't give it any other thought. I moved to Las Vegas in 1979. And it was really sort of a, a quirky decision. I was living in Berkeley at the time. I was a debate coach at UC Berkeley, Cal. And my girlfriend and I were trying to figure out what to do. I had, I didn't want to get a PhD. I didn't want to try to get a doctorate. I was tired of being poor. And uh, so we flipped a coin. I wanted to go to Hawaii. She wanted to move to Las Vegas. Uh, the coin told us Las Vegas. So we moved there. And um, I had met some guys who said they had a friend who was in the television business. They thought because I speak and write that I might have a future in television. It's a a long story, but uh, I ended up getting to work for a PBS station. I was hired by KLAS in 1981 as a general assignment reporter. And at that time, I had no idea what I had moved to. I, I had no idea there was a Nellis Air Force Base. I had no idea that the Nevada test site, the most nuked place in the world, was out there with all kinds of scientists and secrets. And I certainly had no idea about Area 51. My news director uh, back then, Robert Stodall, did have an interest in Area 51. And after I'd been there a while, he gave me a little file. The uh, the total existence of media articles about Area 51, and there hadn't been many, might have been 20 pages. 
and told me, hey, you might want to look into this someday. There's a lot of secrets out there. But he didn't mention anything about UFOs. I think 19, the mid-80s, um, Area 51 came into more focus for us when the U.S. government, the Air Force, illegally seized 89,000 acres of land surrounding uh, Area 51, Groom Lake. And, uh, you know, one day it was public land accessible by anybody. The next day there's uh, Air Force guys there with machine guns or submachine guns guarding it and keeping people away. And that, that land has remained off limits ever since. So that got a lot of our attention, our media attention. We ended up producing a, a multi-part series about the history of Area 51, speaking to area people who had worked out there, people who live around the base. But again, it wasn't about UFOs. That happened around 1987. A guy named John Lear walked into our TV station to meet my boss, an investigative reporter named Ned Day. He was our managing editor. Ned had broken a really big story with the help of Lear. And the story was the existence of a fighter plane that was invisible to radar. We eventually learned that it was the F-117 stealth. Um, Ned Day, Bob Stodall had helped break that story, made it uh, made news all over the world. So because Lear had helped tell us about that plane, he had a certain amount of credibility with us. So he came into the news station and he had a stack of documents, what turned out to be UFO documents, and plopped them on Ned's desk and said, Ned, this is the biggest story in history. It's a giant cover-up. You're going to win all kinds of awards. You can blow the roof off this thing. And Ned kind of looked through these papers and he said, uh, I, this can't be true. If this was true, I, I'd already know about it. So he pushed it away and thanks, but no thanks. I'm sitting over uh, near Ned's desk. I'm eavesdropping, as I tend to do, as good reporters do. And before Lear left, I said, hey, let me take a look at that stuff. Let me get a look at it. And he gave me the pile and I started reading about it. I thought this is kind of interesting, UFOs and cover-ups and things like that. At the time, I produced a little uh, public affairs show, a 30-minute talk show that would air Sunday morning, Saturday morning at 6 in the morning. Very few people watched it. I'd have a normal guest of a city councilman or um, a county commissioner, and it had a very limited audience. But I thought, well, I'll put John Lear on this show, and we'll stir things up and see what he says. Put Lear on the program in 1987, and he unleashes this torrent of information that I'd never heard about this gigantic conspiracy. We've got a secret treaty with aliens. We allow them to abduct us and they give us their technology and all the stuff that we now know as, you know, some of the most fundamental, if questionable, uh, theories about the big picture in UFOs. And the reaction from the public really caught me by surprise. Phones are ringing off the hook. People are asking, hey, is that guy for real? Uh, and I, I realized there is a, a great deal of interest in this subject matter that I'd, I'd never considered. I, and I, you know, I didn't put uh, Lear on the spot. I didn't uh, question him or call him crazy or anything. I just let him tell his story. The following year, I had him back on, and he told an even bigger and more complicated story. And then I had him a third time. And in that third interview, he told me that he knows a guy who he thinks was going to get to work out there at Area 51, and we're going to get a lot of information about flying saucers. The guy he was talking about turned out to be Bob Lazar. Four or five months later, in the spring of 1989, I'm hosting the 5 o'clock newscast on KLAS, and we had a five-minute interview segment nightly where we'd have a live guest, and we'd do these interviews, and our, our interview guest for that day bailed on us, and we had to fill that spot. And it just occurred to me, maybe Lear's UFO guy would be willing to talk to us. So I called Lear up. Hey, that UFO guy you said was going to work at Area 51. Do you think he'd talk to us? 
I had no idea what had been going on in Bob Lazar's life or that he would even consider talking to me about some secret stuff in the desert, but things fortuitously worked out. He had been he'd been worried that they were going to kill him, uh, that he had not been called back to work, that he had made some real big mistakes in terms of letting other people know about what goes on out there. So he agreed to do the interview. We had to black out his face. We used a pseudonym, Dennis, which was the name of uh, one of his supervisors out there. And he told his story. And what an incredible story it was that he, uh, we were reverse engineering alien craft built into the side of a hangar at a place called S4, south of Groom Lake, uh, that this the biggest secret in history, that it wasn't being handled very well. And he admitted that he was really worried about his future, that he might not be around very long, which is why he agreed to come forward. Uh, we get done with that interview. The general manager of the station comes running in. The news director pulls me in. What is the deal on that? Is that for real? Is the guy telling the truth? And to be honest, I didn't know. We'd put him on without any pre-screening. I didn't know he was going to say all that stuff. But we were blown away, and the, the public went crazy. What the deal is that? They were calling us up, wanting to know who, who he was. That uh, interview prompted all kinds of people to descend on Area 51. Pretty soon, radio hosts were taking busloads of people out there to uh, s- stand out there and, and watch whatever was going on in the sky. That following weekend, uh, my news director and I went up to meet Lazar. We decided we got to get to the bottom of this. So we went up to Lear's house, which is about a mile from where I live now, and uh, and we met Lazar, and we spent hours putting him through his paces, asking him questions. Where'd you go to school? Who hired you? What were your duties? What were what was your job title? All this stuff. And we came out of that meeting a few hours later and looked at each other and go, holy crap, what if this is real? I had never considered this UFO cover-up stuff. I'd never paid attention to it. My news director said, well, we could look into it, spend some time looking into it, and we'll put on the air whatever we find. It could be a multi-part series. Well, it ended up being a nine-part series. Each of those uh, pieces was like 12 to 13 minutes long, and it was the highest rated thing we ever did. It, it had a huge response from our audience. And in pre- preparing to tell Lazar's story, I had to sort of learn A to Z UFOs, everything about it. I read every book. I read all documents. I filed my own FOIA requests. I interviewed people all over the country, and we put together this series, and I got a crash course in the weird, wacky world of UFOs, and it's I've been on that trail ever since. And that that's amazing. Thanks for the background. And the Bob Lazar story is one that's been told in books and, you know, as you say, TV series, documentaries. If you watch anything on the History Channel, those types of shows, it's been covered extensively, podcasts and everything as well. I do have a few questions about the Bob Lazar story and a few things to touch on. But just before that, you're heavily involved then in this this topic and subject at that time. You're thrown into it. You've got Bob, who is known as Dennis at the time with his pseudonym. What was your colleague's reaction? Obviously, you're saying that the manager at the time was really encouraging this, but what did they think about you being like the UFO guy? Well, my news director, Bob Stodall, who had, he's the guy who had had an interest in Area 51 before. My managing editor, uh, Ned Day, uh, was gone by then, but he uh, had had an interest in it. So they were supportive. I think my other colleagues, once I took the deep dive into it, generally thought I was crazy, you know, and, and especially our, 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 um, competitors. The other TV stations were always cracking jokes about it. Um, On radio, all the radio hosts, when they run out of belch, barf, and fart jokes in the morning, they'd make fun of the UFO guy. The newspaper in particular, the state's largest newspaper, the RJ, 
teed off on me on a regular basis. I became the subject of several editorial cartoons. It's me uh, with a butterfly net chasing flying saucers, or there was another one. They called it the Marshmallow Head Chronicles, and it showed E.T. Hitman had come to Earth to bump me off, to silence me. And, you know, it was all very funny stuff. I have a thick skin. I understand it. But I was amazed at how how harsh the reaction from journalism was, especially in the fact the fact that they had not done any of the homework. They hadn't read the books. They hadn't interviewed the witnesses. They hadn't gone out like I had dozens and dozens of times sitting out there in the desert of Area 51 looking in the sky to see what's flying around. They found it much easier to just make fun of it than to do the work. And that's the way it's pretty much been ever since. Is uh, And I it really has bothered me about my profession and how they treat it in that they make a judgment about whether it's legitimate without doing the actual work, sort of like what science has done. Is that a reason then why you would look at platforms such as Joe Rogan's podcast, which is still almost a new type of journalism, if you want to call it that? As, a, as an old school journalist, you might not like to call it journalism, but social media is huge, and there's no doubt Joe Rogan's podcast has a massive, massive reach. You, you go on an interview on there, and it's millions of hits, millions of listens, downloads, and more eyes on the subject. You've been involved in a few of those appearances. You've been on there yourself, and recently you accompanied uh, Mr. Bigelow along for, for his as well, which obviously we got teased about on social media. Do those appearances have the desired impact for you in 2020 and 2021 that you're looking for? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's not exactly the same as, say, a 60 Minutes type platform, but uh, it's important that we reach the public uh, where they are. Uh, Joe Rogan has a huge audience, and when he speaks about this stuff and takes it seriously, it it, it lands on people. It sticks in their heads. So I think it's valuable. And and right now is a unique opportunity. I'm sure we'll talk about this in a little bit. But right now, the changes have been underway the last three years that I never thought I would see in my life. I mean, it's been an amazing process. Those first 30 years of almost 30 years of me plugging away at this, I'm pounding and pounding away trying to squeeze little tiny bits and pieces of information out of the government, get it confirmed, find sources who worked on the inside. And it was tough sledding. It was slow going, slow process. Um, what's happened the last three years since December, 2017, since TTSA put the, put the, its organization together, since the New York times did that, everything has, has changed. It's changed everything. So now you can go on a program like Joe Rogan and, and talk about it. Now you can have 60 minutes interview Robert Bigelow and ask him the alien questions and people don't snicker quite as loudly. It's, it's a, an astonishing turnaround in a short amount of time. And and I know it's never fast enough for people who want all the answers and want it right now. But man, that the the things that we have learned in the last couple of years are astonishing when you look at it in the broad scope of UFO history. Not to jump ahead, but do you foresee a time where the subject is going to be back on shows like 60 Minutes in a serious way? And obviously 60 Minutes is a massive show in the United States, but in the UK, could we see that on you know the BBC News primetime? Is it going to be on those massive channels again? Or do you think ufology or UFOs as a topic has to go down the route of that alternative media? I can't speak for the BBC. I know I learned a lot in talking to you and Dan and Dave about how, how uh, reticent they are and reluctant to take the topic seriously. But I know that American journalism has changed, and it's largely because of the New York Times. I've told the story before that that whole story about ATIP, OSAP, the secret program, the secret study 
conducted by Bigelow, the contract he got with the DIA, I, I was allowed to know about that stuff. And I kept it quiet because that was the agreement I made. Um, so when I learned that the New York Times was getting ready to do, to do the story, I complained about it. I said, hey, why do they get to do this story? I've been sitting on it for a long time. I'd like to do it. And I had to, to gently be told by three different people whom I respect, look, if you do the story, it's another story from a UFO guy. If the New York Times does the story, it changes everything. And I had to reluctantly acknowledge that I am not the New York Times and that they were right. So I held off in doing anything that might cause them to drop the story. And I made an agreement with Senator Reid, for example, that after this thing breaks, I want the first interview with you on camera, and a deal that he kept. And I knew that even if the New York Times did the story, that there was so much more to tell that I knew that they didn't know. So I went along with that, and it really worked out. The New York Times did that story, and it legitimized the subject matter for other media. You know, Washington Post, LA Times, uh, 60 Minutes had interviewed Bigelow before, but all these other media, Fox, MSNBC, CNN, they've all done their UFO stories as a result, because in their view, the New York Times is the paper of record. It's a legitimate story if they do it. And, and it is that, that media ripple effect is still unfolding as we speak because the media took it seriously and it was legitimate for them to discuss. Members of Congress were able to come out of their, their closet and who had had secret interest in the topic. And then they, they held, you know, a number of secret briefings, closed door briefings for their staff, then for elected members of Congress. And we know where that has led. I mean, it's an amazing effect what that New York Times story has done how it's affected media in this country. I don't know about the media in your country. You've brought it up, so let's talk about that now. And you almost um, had my segue down word for word where I was going to bring up the fact that you could have broke that story before the New York Times, uh, I believe on Coast to Coast, I heard you mention that it was the greater good that you let the New York Times basically have that story because it was going to go to a bigger audience, as big an audience as you have and as big an audience as Coast to Coast, Mystery Wire, you know, what you could reach. It's still not the New York Times. So you let Leslie Keane, Ralph Blumenthal go with that story. But you, you did get the interview with Senator Reid out of it. So we know what happened in 2017. It's been well documented and talked about. Um, over three years now down the line, TTSA has completely changed, especially the last kind of four or five months. Um, Lou is gone, Chris is gone, and others have since left as well. What have your thoughts been on how this has played out? Is this what you expected when TTSA hit the scene back in December 2017? Kind of. You know, it's always been a sort of a two organizations in one. There was the side that Tom had always controlled, uh, the entertainment side of it, and then the, the serious engineering and research side that Chris and Lou and Steve Justice represented. Uh, so there was always two organizations under one roof. Uh, I didn't know that the split would come when it did, but um, I am not surprised. I think it's a healthy thing. I think both organizations, both different entities um, are going to be pursuing their own paths, and I think they are, are mutually supportive. Uh, you know, Tom has some really exciting projects uh, that in mind that he's told me about on the entertainment side. That's what he does. That's what he's always done. The other guys, we can talk about what they're up to in a bit, but um, I think it's a it's a good development. I think it's going to be good for both of them. I believe that they genuinely like each other and still talk all the time, and they they're moving the the subject forward in different arenas. You have to give a lot of credit. I know Tom DeLong takes a lot of crap uh, for 
things that he'll post or things he says. He is a free spirit, uh, but he is the central reason why all this changed. Whether we like to admit it or not, he did it. And it's his own strong will and his own strong interest in the subject that moves this ball down the field. I, I remember him calling me up out of the blue. I had never met him before. He got my phone number, called me while I was out in the desert on a, an assignment. And we started talking about UFOs. This was like 2011. And we kind of hit it off. So we continued a conversation uh, ever since and would exchange information and ideas and bounce things off of each other. He had an organization, uh, a publication called Strange Times back then, where he would, uh, it was an online sort of magazine where he'd post UFO stories and paranormal stuff and weird things as part of his company back then. Um, and I, I had him on Coast to Coast. I think probably his first serious UFO interview was on Coast to Coast, and he was remarkably knowledgeable. He knew a lot about it. He clearly had done his homework. Uh, I end up having him again, and then he would share with me progress that he was making along the way uh, when he first made his inroads using his celebrity, sort of, to get into the inside of a major aerospace company where he was asking very blunt questions about this subject matter. And it took a while for them to open up to him, uh, but eventually he worked his way up sort of the food chain. One guy he would interview with and meet him, and then they would share an introduction to somebody else further up the chain. And um, it was legitimate. And I saw it unfold as it happened. He would share with me in confidence, as long as I kept it to myself, the people he was meeting with, how real it was, the progress he was making before he put TTSA together. And it was really an exciting time. And I know a lot of people in the UFO world thought it's a bunch of baloney until some of Tom's emails were included in the WikiLeaks leak. There he is writing to John Podesta. Uh, one of my emails in there was to Podesta uh, as well. And it's kind of a, it's an unsettling thing to see your private emails dumped out into, into a public arena like that. But in effect, those that leak confirmed that Tom really was talking to high level people. And you know, and then he put together TTSA in a very quiet way. It gave Lou Elizondo a place to land. Uh, I don't think he planned it that way. Anybody planned it that way. But Tom created an organization at precisely the right time because Lou left the, the Department of Defense. That's where he ended up with other very credible people who had pursued the topic for a long time. Um, you know, Hal Putoff and Chris Mellon. Uh, and um, anyway, uh, it, it worked out really well. I don't disagree that TTSA changed the game. Tom DeLong played a huge part in that as well. As excitable as he could appear sometimes, especially with some of his tweets he put out that seemed pretty incredible, especially for those of us that are looking for, you know, where are the aliens? Where are they from? You know, what are they made of? And he put out some pretty incredible what-if scenarios via Twitter that got everyone talking. However, is it fair that a lot of people invested emotionally and financially in TTSA as a company. I was a massive supporter. I've got the hoodies and the stickers and stuff as well. Um, does Tom still owe people an explanation and an interview, given what's happened recently? Many would say he's been very quiet and too quiet, given he was very vocal at one point. Well, I will share privately, we've had many conversations and exchanges, he and I, over the years about their even a larger public profile about how they should interact with the public. And I've encouraged that since the beginning, that there should be more of a give and take, especially with investors and and, uh, and media in the 
in the best interest of TTSA. Uh, I don't, uh, you know, I don't tell Tom what to do. I, I give advice here and there. I think he probably does have a long-term strategy in mind. And yeah, I, I agree with you. I think he should come out with some statements. I hope he will. He has some, as I said, some pretty cool projects in the works right now uh, on his side of it. I think the former TTSA guys have some really cool plans in, in the works as well, and that they hopefully will be able to tell the public about it soon. But again, going back to my main point, Tom DeLong made this happen, and it changed the world. Whether TTSA is the same entity or not, it did change the world. And I remember that October 11th, 2017, they go out on that stage and announce the creation of TTSA, and then up pops Lou. And there was very little media attention. It got very little attention in UFO circles. I think Leslie Kane wrote about it for USA Today, and, and KLAS covered it. And that was about it. Little did we know what they had in, in the works. I, uh, two days after that event, Lou Elizondo came to Las Vegas and met with me and Robert Biglow, and we got to see those videos for the first time a couple of months before the New York Times broke them. But those guys, that team, Lou and Chris and Tom and Hal, lobbied uh, the New York Times, convinced them that there was enough information to do a story. They worked it really hard. And as a result of that, it blew this topic wide open. And if TTSA never does anything else again, they at least did that. And it changed the hit, the trajectory of UFOs forever. I am sure that Tom has some, well, I, I don't want to say, I, I did invest in it uh, late in the first period. I didn't really want to do it because I was worried after I'd done some stories about it, it would be a conflict. So I took my investment, which is not that big, put it in a place where I can never benefit from it. And I know, I, you know, it's not a good investment. Everyone said it was a terrible investment. I, I know I put my money into it as a way to support it. I, I didn't think I'd ever see it again, not a dime of it, uh, because the best uh, investment experts that I know, Robert Bigelow and Jacques Vallée, had said it's a bad investment. You're not, don't do it. If you're doing this to make money, it's not a good idea. I think like a lot of people, I put money into it to support it, not to as an investment where I get a return. People like myself, like I, I looked at those initial investments and they were far lower than what they came to be later on with what they were asking for, for a minimum. My investment was obviously, I talked about it a lot on the podcast and it was TTSA was a big part of me creating this podcast, but I went and bought some hoodies, some t-shirts, I bought the stickers and that was my way of kind of showing support as well. Tom in the last day or so has uh, been on social media mentioning that the movies and books are coming along and they plan to push a lot out through stories uh, and get a lot of you know facts and you know nuggets in there and easter eggs as people like to call them do you think that ttsa as it is now then still has a place in pushing forward if you want to call it disclosure uh, in that scenario more than just being an entertainment company yeah, I think uh, I think a fictional narrative, a movie, can affect us in ways that a straight news story does not. Uh, you know, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, for example, is a movie that really is based a lot on factual uh, incidents and a factual narrative. It's told in a fictional setting, and I think it's had a powerful impact over the years. The same with a Spielberg series called Taken that was on the air, I think, nine or ten parts about abductions. That is a terrific subtle influence on the public and the public's understanding of the broader issues and the broader history of these topics. So you can pursue fictional um, works, uh, novels, movies, animated movies, and still have an effect on the public's general understanding of these issues in a way that a New York Times story or a 60 Minutes story does not. I think they are complementary. 
uh, the the fictional approach, the non-fiction approach, the straight news approach, they're all ways to reach the same audience, which is all of us. I do hope Tom sits down one day with someone, especially like yourself, and has that conversation that people kind of want to hear. Not necessarily, like you say, a, a mudslinging um, show, because they're still very much amicable and speaking to each other in the background. But just to let people know what did happen with the initial goals and visions and the anti-gravity craft that they were putting pictures out about and you know what's going to happen with all of that. And hopefully that's still to come. Lou Elizondo, uh, you, you touched on as well, has obviously gone his separate ways. And I had Lou on the podcast a few weeks ago. He'd done a bit of a media wave of interviews as well. Now, he's just been tweeting and he's been very vocal since he left TTSA, which has been great. He's um, had a great social media presence, which is something that he was quite reluctant to do from what we hear from people in the past as well. But he's really putting himself out there, especially on uh, Twitter. He's been tweeting about the upcoming UAP task force report and what people would like to see. So he was actively asking, what do you want to see the people in this report? I'd like to ask you, George, what would you like to see in the report yourself? And then also, what do you think we're going to see? Well, my uh, my expectations have been lowered. You know, I was pretty excited about it. I had heard it was in the works, um, you know, that there were um, indications that something like the UAP task force was already up and running. As ever since the end of ATIP in, in one form or another. And then it became formalized in June of, of last year. And then at the in December of last year, we learned that there's a specific mandate from the Senate Intelligence for them to put together this report for Congress and uh, presumably to be released uh, to the public. That was pretty exciting. But since then, in January, almost as soon as that legislation was signed and went into effect, where the clock was ticking, the six-month clock was ticking, some very dramatic changes happened for the task force. It was already a pretty small organization, but it was headed by a guy who is absolutely the right person for that job, had a high level of clearance, had access to just about anything he wanted, had a great deal of experience and knowledge of the field, had been poking around into this subject for a long time. He was yanked out of it, pulled out of it, uh, completely unexpected, uh, unexpected by him and everybody else associated with the topic. Uh, just they called it a you know a normal rotation, which it seemed to me like an indication that whoever was calling the shots wanted to kneecap this this program before it ever got started. Now the uh, I don't know the guy who's in charge of it now. Uh, I have heard a great deal of things, uh, good things about him that he is knowledgeable and hardworking. However, he was given no budget, no staff, and he has a full time job. So him writing the report for the UAP task force to Congress. He has to do that on his own time. Uh, now, how how comprehensive a report do you think that will be? In addition, he does not have the same security clearances as the guy who had the job before. So there's a lot of the most sensitive information that he will not be allowed to see. I am hopeful that he will be able to produce a report that has dramatic cases involving national security, because that's the mandate for the task force, and be able to present that to Congress. But I suspect what will be given to Congress will include a bunch of annex reports that the public will not be allowed to see. Um, I don't even know if this guy can get access to them. Uh, so my expectations are low. I, however, that said, I think it's significant that the DOD has a mandate from Congress to produce a report, even if they end up getting an extension beyond June uh, and need more time to put it together. Um, the fact that it's even being done at all is an amazing step forward. And so I look forward to whatever they produce uh, but I'm not expecting great revelations about 
where the flying saucers are stashed or the metamaterials or the alien bodies. Do you see this turning into being part one of a further report down the line? Is that at this point the best we can expect? No, I think the best we can expect is it becomes the basis to create a permanent program. UAP Task Force says this is a legitimate issue. We have information from all the different branches of the military. These incidents have been serious. They do involve national security. They do involve aviation uh, safety, and it needs to be studied further. And then the result of that being that Congress creates a permanent program that will investigate this ongoing, maybe something separate from uh, the office of uh, the Secretary of Defense, um, you know, put it somewhere else where it's not subject to the kinds of pressures that the Pentagon has put on the subject matter over the years and let them go forward. Give them a budget, give them to the personnel, let them study this. Could you see someone like Lou going back into that position at that point then? I've asked him. I've asked him. And the answer basically, I think, is yes. I mean, he doesn't want to commit himself to it, but I think he would do that. Yeah. And what role do you see Christopher Mellon having in any of this going forward? Christopher Mellon is really the unsung hero in all this stuff. I mean, he has made so much progress, always below the radar, always doing it privately. His engagement with members of Congress and senior staff, armed services, intelligence committees has uh, made remarkable breakthroughs. He's been such a key player in getting the ear of key policymakers, lawmakers, and, and presenting a credible case for them so that they are hooked. They want to know. I mean, you've seen a couple of sound bites from people like Marco Rubio, Rubio and Senator Warner, where they are committed to the idea. This is real. It's a genuine concern. And we want to get to the bottom of it. Now, that's that's Chris Mellon's work. That's that's what he's done. And uh, I would imagine he would continue to liaison with uh, Congress, between Congress and the DOD, in support of whatever kind of program might be created, assuming it's going to be created. You're right that he's definitely got a quieter public profile as well when it comes to social media and interviews. He's very much a hard man to get a hold of. I'm sure you probably know that as well. Um, but in speaking to David Marler just a few weeks ago, he was mentioning that Chris Mellon's got a huge passion for the subject, particularly when it comes to Black Triangle UFOs. And he still keeps in touch with Chris regularly, sending him e emails about cases that Chris might be interested in. So I think that speaks volumes for Chris Mellon's passion and it's great to have someone like him with his connections and influence involved in the topic as well. So it seems to be we're in good hands going forward. And Lewis said the same as you, that the, the new head of the task force is someone that we can still have have trust in, however much their hands may be, may be tied. Just taking a bit of a step back then, uh, we were talking at the start, of course, about Bob Lazar. Now, you famously broke the story. The story's been told a thousand times. People can go and get the book Dreamland. People can watch any number of series on it as well. Now, you're, you yourself are linked to the story almost as much as Bob is, especially to those of us in the UFO community. What do you think has made Bob's, Bob's story endure now for going on 30 years plus? Uh, that's a good question. You know, I've, I've, uh, as Bob has, uh, Lazar has said himself, if he were, uh, had the choice about whether to do it over again, he probably would not. And I've asked the same question about whether we would, um, we would pursue the story or not too. I, I think there's an assumption that, you know, we in the TV business, we only do things to get ratings. And of course, ratings are part of it. We want people to watch what we do. But for KLAS, my employer, I mean, that's a jewel of an organization. It's supported me all these years because it's learned to trust me on other sensitive and important stories. So when I come to it with a, with, to them with a UFO story, 
Uh, they know that I approach it the same way as uh, as other stories. And, uh, you know, the whole Area 51 thing has been a mixed bag for me. I think it probably, um, in the long run, has not helped my career. I think pe- people think, they think of me as the UFO guy. I do this percentage of stories about UFOs and this percentage of stories about everything else, but this is the one that is stuck and uh, for good or for bad. You know, I get uh, dozens of, of letters and emails and social messages uh, about Area 51 and Lazar all the time. I mean, here it is 31 years later, and uh, a majority of them, what I see, at least on social media, are hostile. I get peppered with uh, really accusatory questions, people telling me how much they don't believe me, wanting to draw me into arguments uh, and answer questions that I've answered a million times before. And I, I rarely engage with people like that, no matter how insulting they are to me, because I consider it a waste of my time. And, you know, I initially worked almost 32 years ago. It told the story as it unfolded for me, uh, warts and all. When there were weak spots or gray areas or problem areas, I told our audience along the way, you know, the the stories were written for Las Vegas TV viewers. They were not written for ufologists. And in the decades since, I mean, every news report we produced, every paragraph, every soundbite, every sentence has been analyzed and picked apart. And if people go into it and they want to find fault with it, they're going to find it. Um, You know, three decades ago, I didn't have the internet to use as a search. So we had to do all things by hand and good old fashioned uh, shoe leather. And in the beginning, it did seem important to me that I wanted people to believe me because I had never had a story where I dig into this stuff. I dig up all this information. I tell it honestly as I've dug it up and have so many people who presumably would be interested in it, automatically shut it out and want to argue about it and say that can't be true and here's why and it's all uh, BS and I must be working for the CIA uh, or th- something like that. You know, in the the very first story uh, I reported, you know, we could not confirm, for example, the schools where Lazar claimed to have attended or the degrees that he claimed to have. Very first story, and I told that in that very first story where we introduced Lazar, and then a couple months later. Someone else went out and, and followed our tracks, went to the same schools and got the same information. And they go, aha, Lazar is a fake. He didn't go to MIT or Caltech. It's as if a, it's a gotcha moment that they have discovered on their own. No, it wasn't. We, we reported that. I reported step by step the problems I ran into with Los Alamos. And you know, I will admit that after the schools that Lazar claimed to have gone, told me he wasn't there, they had no record. That was pretty close to the end of it. Uh, it. I decided to give it one more try at Los Alamos Lab. And the runaround that I got there is what really hooked me on the story. Because I knew he'd been there. I had talked to people he worked with, uh, colleagues who had been there. Lazar took me into the lab himself. We went in one Sunday. Um, he just waves to the guard. We go rolling in with the television camera. He takes us in all these buildings, places where he'd worked. People are waving at him, saying hi. He obviously knew his way around. Nobody stopped us. We, we went into the giant particle accelerator and got video. And as I said, I had talked to people he worked with there. So I knew he was there. And But contacting the lab, they told me, nope, nobody by that name ever worked here. We don't have any records of it. And so I kept peppering them back with uh, records requests. I got Lazar to sign some papers to try to get his personnel file. Uh, they insisted they didn't have any. Eventually, I, I showed them the phone book with his name in it. And uh, they said, well, we still can't explain it. 
I showed him the newspaper article from the Los Alamos Monitor, front page story, Bob Lazar and his jet car. Um, it was right there in, in which he said he was a physicist and the newspaper uh, reporter had verified that. They still denied it. I went to a company called Kirkmeyer, which was a headhunter company. They would hire people to fill technical and scientific positions at the lab. And in the in the Los Alamos phone book, you'll see that it had a KM next to Lazar's name. They were the company that hired him to fill that position. And when I initially called Kirkmeyer, they said, uh, yeah, we've got his file. If you can get a signed statement from him, we'll send it to you. Great. I get the signed statement from him. I send it to him. And then no, nothing. Weeks go by, no response. I send or wrote to him again. I started calling him up. Each time I contacted them, they grew more hostile. And finally, in the end, after months and months of back and forth, they said, we don't have any records on him. Now that, to me as a reporter, that got my attention because I know he was working there. I know Los Alamos knew he was working there. I knew Kirkmeyer knew they had hired him to work there, and yet they were all lying to me. So that really told me something weird was going on, and that's what kept me going. And now, you know, now we are at a point where every week, every day, you know, new people discover this story. Now, new people who are just drawn to the UFO topic, they discover it. And so then they'll find something. They think, aha, I've made this big discovery. Why didn't you tell us he got into legal trouble? There's no way he'd ever be hired at uh, Area S4 or, or Area 51 if he had this kind of a record. Well, I have told people that before. I have explained that not only did he get into trouble and not only did we report it, but I'm the person who reported it to the police because I thought it was necessary. And, uh, you know, so I get hit with that kind of stuff pretty much every day. I do get tired of answering the same questions again uh, for people who are new to the story who have not done their homework. You know, I hear the story about Lazar and Bigelow. Bigelow tossed him out. Bigelow figured out he was a fake and, and he, they broke off with him. That's not the way it went. Um, you know, we recently had an interview with uh, Robert and, uh, and Robert even talked to Joe Rogan about it, about the reason that they split. And it was really a, a much smaller misunderstanding that we can go into uh, the supposedly the uh, element 115 Lazar had, according to some people who spend all their time researching Bob Lazar, if you can believe it, they think that the element 115 either wasn't real or Lazar was trying to pass off some other element as one element 115, or they were using the lab with Bigelow to produce 115, which is preposterous. I get hit with this stuff all day long, and I have to sometimes pick and choose whether I want to get involved in answering it for the 10,000th time, it is far easier, I will tell you, to just let it go and let people believe whatever the hell they want. It's, it's still great hearing you tell parts of the story back. And you made a really good and interesting point right at the start, George, where you talk about you wrote that story and that was reported for the people of Las Vegas at that <laughs> time, which is the, the late 80s, you know, early 90s. The world has changed a lot since then in 30 years. And you've got people now with fresh eyes, fresh, you know, mindsets, right or wrong, going back and looking at that. Is there anything that if you did go, or could go back and tell yourself or give yourself any advice to do with the story from the start, what you would give yourself? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I might have uh, worked on it for another year before releasing it. You know, we spent eight months doing it, but there's always more you can do. Uh, there's a lot of other uh, avenues I would have liked to have gone down. But it, back then, uh, you know, Lazar was afraid he was going to be killed. I mean, he was scared. This is the hard part to, to convey to people. The things that were going on back then, 
it's not something you can write in a document. It was real. I mean, it, you know, I uh, had a lot of meetings with him in those months in between when he went on the air as Dennis and November of 89, when we went on the air and told his identity. There were a lot of really strange things happening to him and to all of us. We were all being followed. My phone was tapped. I mean, I know we all assume that somebody is listening to all phone calls we make these days or the every electronic communication goes into some gigantic database, at least here in the U.S., and that's true. But back then, I uh, I took umbrage at the idea that somebody would be tapping the phone of a news news organization, a news reporter, without a warrant, um, without uh, going through any official channels, just doing it to find out who else might be contacting me to give me information to support Lazar's story. Um, you know, I, I don't know how I'd do it differently. I'm, I'm glad that we did it. I'm glad that it is an enduring story. I know that a lot of people are devoted to trying to debunk the whole thing, but I'm sorry, they lost. Lazar's story won. I can't tell you how many movies it's been in, how how common that theme is. Area 51 is now known all over the world, and it's because of Bob Lazar. Prior to Lazar, the only people who knew about it were those who either worked there or lived in Nevada and were around the base. But now it's known everywhere. I mean, it's a, it's a, I wish I had a percentage of every business that had been launched based on Area 51, you know, bars and trinkets and posters and uh, bands and all kinds of stuff. Our AAA baseball team in Las Vegas was the 51s. The ET highway was uh, christened by the state of Nevada. That's all from Lazar. Um, that whole theme of us uh, having alien technology, trying to reverse engineer it, is coming back. You know, it's uh, not that it ever went away, but it is, you find that theme in a lot of current stories and it stems from Lazar. So whether the debunkers hate it, I, I know they do, and and want to destroy Lazar and pick away at the story, I'm sorry, they lost. The, the world knows that story and it's not going to change. What's to come next in the Bob Lazar story? Is there a next chapter or is it finished? I don't think so. I, I There's no next chapter for me. I'm not doing anything about it. Um, you know, uh, the, the question about element 115 gets raised a lot. And I, I once said in a presentation that I thought I knew where it was and I did know where it was. I don't know where it is anymore. And I know people don't believe a lot of people don't believe it exists, but he had a chunk of it and it would provide proof positive. Uh, but it's not mine to dig up. I don't know where it is anymore, where it's hidden, but I'm telling you, he had a piece of it and it would be a pretty definitive proof. If he could somehow present that uh, to some independent party and do a demonstration of what it's capable of doing, that would be worth the story. But other than that, I'm I'm inclined to leave Bob alone. He doesn't want the attention. Every couple of years, I would drag him out. Hey, it's the 20th anniversary. We need to do a story. And he would reluctantly go along with it with me. And then he did that film with Jeremy, uh, in large part because there was an opportunity to tell sort of the personal side of what this has been like for him, one that I never focused on. I mean, I did a lot of interviews with him, but it was always about, hey, how do you prove where you worked? How do you prove where you went to school? That stuff and the and the basic story, but not the story of Bob. I hope for his sake that the world leaves him alone from here on out. It's been told, unless he's got some really big surprise to uncork on the world, uh, I'm I'm inclined to leave it alone. Maybe one day I'll get a bit of vindication if if and when things come out, but who knows. Before we get to listener questions, George, um, you're also heavily connected to Skinwalker Ranch. What are your thoughts on its ownership under Brandon Fugel, uh, the ongoing series with the History Channel, and what's to come next from Skinwalker Ranch as a scientific investigation? 
Well, I am cur- I am encouraged by uh, what Brandon has done with the property and the uh, safeguards he's put in, and the fact that he's continued the study that he's documenting uh, the events there, both through the TV show and I think he's got some other plans for sharing information about things that have happened to he and his team on that property. He's very open, as you know. He's on social media. He answers direct questions, which is very much in contrast with Robert Bigelow and when he owned the property. He holds his secrets pretty close to the vest, so I'm encouraged. I think uh, Brandon's done a lot of good historical research about things that happened there a long time ago that uh, I I was never able to really fill in some of those blanks, so I look forward to hearing it in uh, season two. He was the right person to take it over. I think Robert Bigelow would not have sold it to him if he wasn't the right person. Uh, He has the attitude the same as what Bigelow had in that uh, he is a caretaker of a very special place. As we have reported, you know, the what happens on that ranch is not unique just to the ranch. It is an epicenter in a sense because it it is the most studied paranormal hotspot ever. You know, the NID study and then the Bass study and then what uh, what uh, Brandon and his team are doing now. I don't think there's any other place in the world that even comes close to it. But that whole you went to basin has the same kinds of activity, and it has been a hotspot for a very long time, perhaps hundreds of years, perhaps as long as people have lived in the basin. Uh, you know, there have been the the book by Frank Salisbury in the 1970s, the, the Utah UFO display that documented hundreds of cases. The basis of that book came from a guy named Junior Hicks, the science teacher who unfortunately died last year. But he was I met him on my first trip to Skinwalker back in the 90s. And and um, and uh, it was his work that formed the basis of the book. And he did a lot of uh, work with us that helped us fill in the blanks. Colin Kelleher and myself that went into our book. And, you know, it's a unique place. I, I don't, there aren't many places like it in the world. And it certainly changed my view of the UFO topic. And I use it in a more generic sense because, you know, when I started this stuff, the dominant paradigm at the time was UFOs are ET craft. They're solid craft from somewhere else. Visitors coming here to check us out now and then, but they live somewhere far away. And Skinwalker, uh, told all of us in very distinct terms that this is a bigger mystery than just things in the sky, that there are other phenomena that indicate that reality isn't what we thought it was, that the world is far more mysterious and wondrous and complex than any of us knew, and that resolving, trying to study UFOs by themselves is not going to get to the bottom of it. That Whatever this is, it's a lot more complicated, and you need to have a much broader perspective if you ever hope to understand it. It's certainly starting to seem that way. George, we will go straight into listener questions. There's so much I could have spoke to you about and hopefully down the line you, you see fit to come back on at some point. We can talk about some more aspects, even about your, your career outside of UFOs as well. Straight into uh, Doug Campbell sent in a question for you, George. Has George ever experienced any so-called hitchhikers at home since your visits to Skinwalker Ranch? And could you share any experiences you may have had? Well, um, I'll just put it this way. I, I, I believe that that's hitchhiker effect is real. Uh, it hasn't, I haven't experienced it myself, but my wife has. And uh, Robert Bigelow's wife did and Colm Kelleher's wife did. And some of the people who went to work, these are government employees who were on the ranch uh, for a time during the bass study. It's happened to them. And this stuff spreads like a virus. It's just really weird. We had some things here that I, I'm not going to go into the details that happened to my wife that were really kind of frightening. 
And you know, it's in a sense, it's my fault because all the visits I've made about 26 or seven visits to the ranch over the years, I would bring little things home, trying to engage with it, you know, basically daring it. Hey, let's see what you got. And I never saw anything, not at the ranch and not here, but it, it has been here and it's, it's caused some problems in my, my home life. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, though. Um, Tim from London has asked, have you ever been asked by a private company or government agency to sign an NDA in the context of technology or capabilities related to this subject? Uh, I had to sign an NDA the first time we went into the ranch under Brandon Fugel. Um, It was not something that he would enforce. It was more like a, uh, you know, sort of a test of our motives. If we would sign it, he'd let us in if, if we didn't. But he's he's been very uh, flexible in terms of what we're allowed to say. I, I have been asked uh, at times if I'd like to get a security clearance and uh, if I wanted to come into a program and um, and see and a lot of things that I would not otherwise be able to see. And I have declined that. I just figured if I signed it, if I tried to get a security clearance um, to learn this stuff, that I really would be limited in what I could report. And I have, I've had some success in just being patient, you know, and in it's not a trick uh, to appear trustworthy. It's actually to be trustworthy, you know, and the relationships that I've developed over many years takes a lot of work. You know, it, it's, it's hard to get people to trust you where they open up and share things with you, um, even though you're not allowed to report it. And, it. and in most cases, you know, when people would just share things with me, I figured, well, I'm going to report this someday, one way or another, and then I it would allow me to understand things uh, in a context of where I might not re- be able to report fact X that I've learned, but I'm allowed to, knowing that allows me to evaluate other information that comes in, and I know bullshit when I, when I see it, you know, uh, when somebody is spouting some theory, because I know this over here that I can't report, I know that they're full of crap, uh, so it's been very helpful, and, and what's happened is like with Skinwalker, it was seven years I, before I could report anything on what I had known at the ranch. But eventually, I got to do it. Same thing with Bass Osap. You know, I knew a lot of uh, a lot, but not all of what was going on. But I knew enough to know that there was a really big story going on there. But I couldn't report it because I promised I wouldn't. I always had in mind that I would try to get to the point where I could report it someday. And then when the New York Times story uh, was in the works. Uh, that's when I thought the time was. But they did the story. And as I said before, because I knew so much more, there were plenty of stories for me to follow. So, um, you know, I, I, um, I have not signed any NDAs regarding the things we're talking about today. The only one that I signed that I can remember anyway is with Brandon regarding the ranch. Is that invite to the, get the security clearance open-ended? Is that something that you could go go back and look into now? Or is that opportunity gone? Yeah, I think it's gone. Something you think you would ever take up if the opportunity? Because you're you're talking about reporting to get information out to the masses, which is really noble and selfless. But for you personally, is there no yearning there for? Because I think a lot of people would take that opportunity because you can then learn so much more potentially than you can now. Yeah, well, I'm a journalist. Um, that's what I am. That's what I do. So for me to agree, look, I'd love to know what where the goodies are. I'd love to see them. And I know they're out there, but if I were to know and uh, I could go to prison for ever telling anyone about it, I mean, that'd be pretty frustrating. I have thought about it and I've gone back and forth. Um, 
I sure would like to see it. I know that. You know, it is it, it is a tempting thing. Um, and I'm just going to follow up on that, George, because if I was a listener, I would be shouting at myself to ask this question, okay? When you say um, the goodies are out there, do, do you mean, like, crashed material? And bodies. Okay, cool. People will be screaming at me to follow that one up, but I'm not going to, and I'm just going to leave that a little bit open-ended. Um, people, it's, again, it's, it's one of those things, they're going to make of that what they will. Um, there's only so much you can you can even surmise with that. The Walker, uh, sorry, the Walker, Walker had a question asking, did anyone ever come forward that could corroborate Bob's story that maybe potentially studied with him at MIT or that he was friends with? I, I did find a, a guy who knew him at Caltech, uh, a couple, in fact, and I knew a guy who worked with him in Southern California, at a place called Fairchild, who used to drop him off there, who um, uh, who said that he would drop him off there, didn't go into a classes with him. I don't think the uh, story uh, that Bob told is exactly uh, what people assume, that he was a regular student at either of those places. And I have said this before many times in public. I always thought that the education claims were the weakest part of Lazar's story. And, you know, as we became friends over the years, I said, look, Bob, you know, tell the story. You, you tell me, I'll understand it. We'll, you know, we'll figure out a way forward on this. But <clears throat> if I could not imagine Bob Lazar going to a school and getting a regular degree if you were if he was required to take classes other than science. Uh, I can't see him sitting through uh, English literature class. You know, you used to get degrees in college. I don't know what it's like now, but you had to take a lot of electives in different areas, not just your own area. You couldn't just get a degree in science. He loves science and electronics, uh, but I couldn't imagine him sitting through a his history class or something like that. But um, so I had always offered him that opportunity. Look, tell me, what's the deal on the schooling? Because I have said, I don't believe you went to those schools long enough to get degrees. And he's, uh, he's, he's stuck to his guns on it, that he was there. But I don't think that it, uh, he was there long enough to get master's degrees in a way that we would understand. And again, I had to wrestle with that, that, uh, that fact that he was not being entirely truthful on that. Does it call into question everything else that he did? And the way I resolved it for me, for purposes of the story, was Los Alamos. If he worked at Los Alamos in a scientific and technical position and had clearances and worked on sensitive material, sensitive programs, then it is conceivable he could have been hired to work out at S4. Did he work at Los Alamos? Yeah. I mean, beyond any doubt. I, I have no doubt whatsoever of that because I've talked to enough of his colleagues there and have been there, as I explained before. And so has Jeremy Corbell. So, you know, I don't think it's ever going to be resolved to our satisfaction. And people who don't want to believe, I understand. There's plenty of reasons why you don't want to believe. People who do want to believe, I understand that too. It's sort of like a Rorschach test. You know, Lazar, you can pick your poison. You can. There's enough to justify either position. And I'm not interested in convincing anyone of one or another. I can just tell you how I approached it. Thanks for that. Next up, Brendan has asked, has George learned of any updates regarding the Christian fundamentalists in the Pentagon preventing disclosure or investigation due to feared demonic elements to do with the phenomenon? Not really. A lot of those people are gone. Uh, the people who opposed that program back in in 2011, 2012, they've moved on. I think they've been replaced by other people. I do believe that there are still some people there, and we've seen evidence of it in recent weeks, uh, that are hostile to the program. And it's a variety of motives, too. Some of those 
fundamentalists who were worried that we were messing with the demons or Satan or something like that. Um, you know, I think there's still an element of that there, but other people oppose the program for very personal reasons. Can you imagine if you were Lou Elizondo's boss on the day that he stepped on that stage with TTSA in Seattle and he says that, yeah, I was involved in this program and you did not know. Um, but the fact is, as Lou has always told the story, his immediate supervisor did not know that he was working on this program, ATIP. It was the guy above that who had given the order and cut the, the guy in the middle out. I think that guy is still there. I think some of the statements we have seen from the public affairs lady who answers FOIA questions at the Pentagon, Susan, um, I think she has had influence from some people who have very personal reasons to uh, object to Lou's new line of work. And I, you know, I, some of the uh, uh, things that have happened to the UAP task force, for example, the kneecapping of the task force might involve very personal motives. Also, just the general idea, the long history of the Pentagon, they don't want to talk about this stuff. They still don't want to talk about it. There are legitimate national security issues involved. And, and I think I understand some of those. I think they have a legitimate case to be made, you know, that, that we don't want the technology to be developed by the Russians or Chinese first. We don't want to give them a hint about how far along we are. Um, those are legitimate questions. But, you know, shutting it down and plugging your ears and covering your eyes is not healthy. It's not going to resolve this, this issue. They've, they've had this technology being uh, analyzed for a long, long time, and they haven't figured it out yet, as far as I know. And, and I think uh, a little sunlight would do everybody some good. So this next one changes uh, topic slightly, still on UFOs, of course, but looks for your opinion. Uh, Simon Kelly wants to know, why does George think UFOs have an array of flashing lights when seen at night? Simon thinks it could be do to do with the fact that night for safety, we as humans turn on lights in the street at home or light fires, and he thinks they're potentially trying to reassure us by mimicking or mirroring what we do. Have you got any thoughts on that, George? Yeah, it sort of, sort of goes back to um, Skinwalker Ranch in a way, is that... Um, the long range, the arc of history about UFOs and other kinds of paranormal phenomena, um, if you want to call it paranormal, is that they show us glimpses of other realities. We don't know why they show it to some people and not to others. I think UFOs often want to be seen. You know, it might be want to be seen by a particular audience or a broad audience, like with the Phoenix Lights incident or something like that. I think they want to be seen. I think they are playing some mental games with us. And I don't know what their long range. Uh, objective is or or why they would uh, play it out this long in this way but uh i think they put flashing lights on there so we'll see them excellent thanks for that uh, robert asks do you have any data or knowledge george of any uap activity over the cern collider site in switzerland yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna pass on that one for right now um there's some information that's come my way that's not uh, – I, I can't release it right now, but I think it will come out eventually. Okay, that's a that's a good tease, if, if nothing else. I appreciate that. Um, Martin Fuller wants to know, um, can I ask George whether he's aware of any new and exciting initiatives globally to help move the ball downfield? Uh, this relates to rumours around the possibility of the UN perhaps being approached, and I know – uh, Lou Elizondo himself talked about an international organization when he was on Ryan Sprague, Summer in the Skies, potentially looking to get involved in the discussion in a serious way. Well, I have had the conversations with Lou in private about what comes next. I, I think I'm going to leave it to him to uh, release 
what information he wants to do. But uh, since he has shared that much with uh, with Ryan, I'd say, yeah, he has he has some grand objectives. He and Chris Millen are looking to take it global. I think they have had interactions with other governments and are hoping that there can be a much broader scale study and initiative to really move the ball down the field. So yeah, uh, I am aware that uh, they have plans in that direction. How far it's gone, I don't know. Okay, the next one I'm really looking forward to asking because I was going to ask this in the body of the interview and it's something that's been pretty uh, pretty recent. Dave Lorimer wants to know, have you been approached to release the picture of the black triangle UFO that you have in your possession? Now, I don't know if you do have one in your possession and he's just taking, so you're shaking your head, so that's a no. But I, of course, uh, would like to know your thoughts on this supposed uh, in which I do hear exists, black triangle picture taken from the cockpit of a, a fighter jet again on what I'm assuming is a camera phone. Um, and we're hearing quite recently James Fox on, I think it was Logan Paul, the YouTuber's channel, mentioned this uh, triangle UFO emerging from the water is about the size of a football field. Well, I have uh, made inquiries about a photo of a triangle emerging from the water, and no one that I know has seen it. Um, there are photos of UFO triangles, for sure, in the possession of our military. There are videos that the public has not seen. There are pretty substantial videos and photos, and some of them are triangles. But the particular photo that we're talking about of a a triangle coming out of the water, no one that I know has seen that photo. Uh, There are some other photos uh, that have taken on cell phones by um, pilots, by F-18 pilots, that I have seen. So when the story came out about this triangle, and then we saw the Batman balloon uh, photo, uh, I had said, yeah, I've, I've seen that. I, I got a copy of it. But it, it actually, I got a copy of something different taken by the same pilot at the same time. And it does not show a photo, uh, a Batman balloon. It does not show a triangle, but it is um, the same pilot, same time from a different angle. I suspect that that same pilot took more photos, that there might be... Uh, a string of photos taken in that same exchange. And I wouldn't be surprised if all of the different angles looked like a different object. Okay. So within the body of that article that was released on the debrief, it seemed to mention that the object was cube shaped and that surprised people that the object on the photo happened to very quickly look like a Batman Myler balloon. Um, And let's be honest, it doesn't look like a Batman balloon. There's no Batman logo on it. People have transposed the image and, and it's very, very close to being what that Batman balloon looks like in shape, but there's clearly no picture of Batman on the front of it. But you're saying that there potentially are, there are other photographs taken from different angles, potentially by the same pilot of the same incident that would show that it's not a Batman balloon. Yeah. Uh, I would say that those other photos show each one shows something different. Like it's a, depends on your angle, how it looks either that or the thing is changing shapes. That would be my guess. But I, I don't, I don't know if uh, those photos are going to be uh, released or not, but they're, they're intriguing. But I would not say they're definitive. And, and none of the ones that I have heard about or seen show a triangle. I don't, I'm not saying the triangle doesn't exist, but as far as I know, the triangle coming out of the water photo does not exist. And I just know for a fact, if we do see those other photographs from different angles, people will just claim they're Peppa Pig balloons and other such shapes, no doubt. So yeah. you you cannot please everyone. But that's really interesting. I really do hope that those do come out. Um, 
Barry wants to know, does George know of a different US government programme other than ATIP or OSAP that was potentially hidden behind those? Have you had any hint of that sort of thing? Yeah, um, yeah. There are other little pockets of uh, of information. Um, you know, a lot, you know, we've all all speculated about where some of the real good hardware might be, and and uh, the general consensus from people that I, I've spoken to is that it's stashed in private companies, in aerospace companies, uh, maybe even in foreign countries, so that uh, people like us who are looking for it can't find it. But uh, there are um, people inside the government who interact with those folks. And um, I have an idea about where one of them uh, is, uh, at least where one of them was not too long ago. Um, But uh, knocking on that door, it's a hard door to get through. I'll put it that way. I can imagine. Uh, And that's when I look forward to potentially hearing a little bit more down the line. And the last question uh, for this part of the show from uh, listener Bob is, as an investigative journalist, has George ever been approached by the US government and told not to report certain events that may have happened around Bob Lazar, Skinwalker Ranch, or any other UFO-related stories? In the UK, the government can issue a D-notice to the press to stop them talking about certain things. No, I, I always wished it would happen that I get a knock at the door and somebody would threaten me, you better stop that or else, because uh, that would confirm, yeah, I'm on the right track. So I don't know if the stories that I've done, they don't care about them at all, or they don't want to risk uh, making it into a bigger incident by me telling that I've been threatened, or um, you know, uh, or I'm so far off the track, they think it's hilarious, uh, and they'll just let me go on my merry way. But no, I've never had anybody come and tell me to knock it off. I have a lot of government-related people who have tried to lead me down other paths, give me information that would take up my time and be a, a waste of my time and resources and, and lead me uh, towards stuff that would probably discredit uh, my reputation and, and lead to all kinds of trouble. That's happened a bunch of times, but nobody's told me to stop it. Not yet. Uh there's a few more listener questions, George, but uh, George is going to spend a few more minutes with me over on patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast just to answer a few more of those questions. And you can sign up to the from the $1 level just to support and pledge to the show to hear a little bit more exclusive content. But before we wrap up, we've got the quick fire round as well. George, I'm going to read off some topics that we've discussed or touched on, and i just like one or a few words on each one to give to sum up your thoughts. So the first one is Area 51. Incredible, uh, vital national security facility, the place where uh, we won the Cold War. Um, I I have utmost respect for the people who are out there and toil in obscurity to protect all of us. Bob Lazar. An interesting, complex guy, a brilliant guy uh, who has been through hell because of the story that he's told. Um, I hope that he finds peace and... um, but I suspect that uh, the final chapter has not been written. Skinwalker Ranch? It's the most amazing place in the world. It totally changed my views of these subject matters and how interrelated UFOs are with other kinds of mysteries. Uh, you know, I, I am thankful for the time I spent there. I'm not sure I'd ever go back. The Nimitz-Princeton incident of 2004. That's one of the most important UFO cases, maybe the most important of all time, because it is so well documented. The witnesses are so credible. And because there's a video to go along with Dave Fravor's testimony, that story made the front page of the New York Times, and it changed this subject forever. 
do you think, just to follow on that, that could be our modern-day Roswell, given we have witnesses who are still alive, you're not having to speak to grandchildren, and there's uh, evidence in the form of you know radar and, and other things like that? Yeah, I think absolutely. I know that there was a considerable analysis done for under OSAP and BASS that has not been made public. I also know that there is additional information that still sits in the Pentagon somewhere that could document it further. So yeah, it is crucial. It's huge. That story changed everything because of the credibility of Dave Fravor, because of the video evidence, because of the other people, the crew members who came forward. It's huge. For you, George, is it UFO or UAP? I'm still, I'm an old time guy. I still use UFO. I, in fact, I use flying saucers now and then too. So um, it depends on the context. I'll use UAP if we're talking about the UAP task force or the Pentagon programs because it fits there. I use UFO pretty much everywhere else. Excellent. And the last one, what does disclosure mean to you? I'm not holding my breath. Uh, I don't think the day will ever come where the president stands behind a lectern and tells us, yeah, we've got UFOs, we've got crash saucers, we've got bodies. Uh, Sorry to be lying to you all these years, but we had to do it. Uh, I think it's a slow process. I I don't think there will be a definitive moment where suddenly, aha, we all know the secrets. Um, I think because of the efforts of people like DeLong and Lou and Chris and Robert Bigelow and Bob Lazar, that we are being allowed to see more and more as we go along. I, I look forward to what the next few years bring. But again, I'm not holding my breath. I don't think there's ever going to be a dis- day when we're going to have disclosure. Confirmation, yes. Disclosure, no. George, how can listeners follow yourself on social media and keep up to date with your work as well? Mystery Wire? I thank you for asking that, but I put all my stuff on Mystery Wire. I have huge archives. You see this mess behind me here? I try to save everything. Sometimes it gets lost, but all the video interviews I've done, many of which have only been seen in tiny snippets uh, in sound bites, uh, we're releasing the raw stuff. We're producing new content, new interviews, uh, and new stories. Um, it's uh, I'm pretty proud of the work we're doing on that site, and I hope people will check it out. I know that the UK has problems in accessing Mystery Wire. The lawyers for our company, I promise you that if it was my site, we'd figure out a way to make it available to everyone. And the lawyers that represent the company that owns KLAS say they're working on it to resolve these issues. Uh, It's very frustrating. I get 100 messages a week from people angry because they can't read the content, but they can see it. Every video that we put up on the site is Mystery Wire YouTube. It's viewable everywhere. And hopefully we're going to have this issue regarding the the text. available to all of our uh, our friends in the UK and, and European Union. That's great, George. Thanks for coming on, George. Look forward to speaking to you again in the future. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access the shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Charles Earl.